Um, we're going to jump right into the scripture this morning. Uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Um, we're going to be in chapter 7, 1 through 17, but I wanted to get a running start at it a little bit just for context. So we're going to start in, in 6, 19, and we'll read through chapter 7, verse 17. But first, let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you please speak to us through this passage and um, show us the mystery or reveal the mystery of this mysterious person, Melchizedek, and how he points to you, relates to you, and how this speaks to us. Would you guide us through this, Lord God? Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we have this hope. We talked about this last week. The hope that is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, and it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Also, it means king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descendant, descended from Abraham. But this man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi. Yet, he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die. But in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, and... Um, and indeed, the law given to the people established that priesthood. Why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belongs to, belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, you are priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay. So after this long parenthesis in this letter, this kind of um, intentional interruption or side note, we return to this mysterious character. The writer returns us to this mysterious character known as Melchizedek. Melchizedek only appears in three verses 
in the book of Genesis, and then one place in uh, the book of Psalms. But these three obscure verses in the book of Genesis actually establishes him to be a person who's extremely theologically important. He's like a comet that streaks across the Old Testament sky. He only appears briefly, but he burns brightly and becomes a real cornerstone here. Um, Now, in bringing this up, um, the writer has been developing a theme, and he's going to continue to develop this theme. He introduced it earlier in the book, and he's now going to keep adding to it and keep building on it. Um, The people that this passage was written to, just remember, um, they were going back. They were, well, at least tempted to go back to an obsolete system of salvation because of religious and socioeconomic pressure that they were facing. Christianity caused them to break off from Judaism and a lot of other parts of society. And because of that, they lost relationship with their families, um, with their friends. They weren't allowed into the same social circles that they had grown up and been accustomed to. These Christians, although they had each other, they were still feeling very alone and very set apart from other um, from the people that they loved. And so they were tempted to return. They were tempted to go back. They were tempted to hang out in that middle comfortable place but where Christianity and Judaism agree. Now a priesthood is a mechanism, to put it really succinctly, the priesthood is a mechanism that bridges the gap between people and God. Theologically speaking, there's a breach between mankind and God, and therefore the priest would stand in that breach, would stand in that gap, and he would represent man to God. He would come before God um, on behalf of mankind, and he would go before mankind on behalf of God. He would speak message. He was, this, he was a mediator. He was an in-between person. But there were flaws in the priesthood of Levi. So the writer to the Hebrews knowing this, back in chapter 2, he introduced the idea of Jesus being our high priest, our great high priest. And in discussing this idea, he brings in this character, Melchizedek, who was another priest of the living God, mentioned in Genesis 14. Uh, the three verses are 18 through 20. And in that story, Abraham had just defeated this um, confederation of kings, who had kidnapped his nephew Lot. I don't know if you guys remember the story. And on the way back from this incredible battle, and Abraham wasn't a soldier. He wasn't a warrior. Um, he wasn't given, given to getting involved in the skirmishes of his day necessarily. The reason he got involved was because his nephew Lot was taken captive in this war. And he got, all, he got a bunch of guys together, his servants together, and they employed kind of a guerrilla warfare type of a thing against this confederation of armies. And Abraham, because of his unconventional style of warfare, um, kind of attacking in various different ways that they weren't used to, he gained, and because of God's grace, he gained victory over this, over this and um, got his nephew back. And because of this, he became like a local hero. Um, But on the way back from this incredible battle, he meets this mysterious figure named Melchizedek. Let me read the passage to you. This is Genesis 14, 18 through 20. It says, Then Melchizedek, son of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, 
Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything, a tenth of the spoils. And that's it. That's it. Just three quick verses, and yet it inspires more than a, ch- more than a chapter in, in, in the book of Hebrews. Lots of commentary and lots of meaning. So today, we're going to find out who is Melchizedek, who he is. We're going we're gonna to see how great he is. Um, that's uh, a direct quote from the writer of the Hebrews. Look how great he is. We're going to see how great he is, and we're going to see why he represents the only way for man, mankind to get to God, why he is the only uh, effective way for salvation for mankind to get to God. First, let's look at who he is. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 7. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling, res, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So what do we know about this man from the pages of the Old Testament and from the book of Hebrews? Let's, let's see if we can put together somewhat of a profile and start piecing this together. First of all, we learn who he is and we learn about his name. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, a very strong name, um, uh, In the Old Testament, lots of meaning there. It also tells us that he was the king of Salem. Salem is both a place, it's actually an early name for the city of Jerusalem, but it's also associated with the the ancient and modern Hebrew word shalom, peace. And that's why it says that he was the he's the king of peace. So he's the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace, two very strong names for this guy, and it doesn't end there. He's the priest of the most, uh, this is extremely curious. He's the priest of the most high God. Where did Melchizedek learn about this living God? Where did he get this information? This is before any official uh, priesthood was ever um, inaugurated by Moses, before Moses was was even born. How How did he know about this priesthood? Who told him? Where did he go to become the priest of God? Who elected or appointed him to be the king of Salem? All sorts of mystery around around this. The point is, we don't know much about him. He's very obscure. We don't know anything about his ancestors. We know nothing about his descendants. He just appears as like a flag. And, you know, it was supposed to be that way. That's a literary tool. He's supposed to be mysterious so that we can fill in the meaning of those mysteries with a antitype. And yet, and that's what the book of Hebrews is doing, and yet he comes to us um, as someone who knew, we know that he knew, he loved and represented as a priest the most high God, Yahweh. And now look at his function. Look how he functions. Um, First, we see that he had a sacred meal with Abraham. Did you notice that? That's what it means in Genesis 14, 18, when it says that Melchizedek brought out bread and wine for Abraham to, to consume. We don't have, you don't have to be a Bible genius to put that one together 
and think about the Jesus that brings us bread and wine and brings us a sacred meal. We're, gonna, we're going to participate in a sacred meal here this morning. So as a priest, he serves this sacred meal to Abraham. Secondly, he blessed Abraham. He bestows a blessing. And back then, bestowing a blessing was something that only a patriarch of a family could do or a priest would do. We use the word so liberally today, God bless you. We sneeze and we say, bless you, right? Um, or God bless the United States of America. It's a, for us, it's a, it's a throwaway term. But back then, only an authorized person was able to use those words, was able to actually bless a family or bless a nation. It was considered a great gift and a great honor. No one used that lightly. Thirdly, he received tithes from Abraham. By giving that tithe to Melchizedek, Abraham was giving it to God. Melchizedek was a representative, so Abraham was tithing to God. Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God, and he didn't reject it. He received Abraham's tithe as something proper for him to do on God's behalf. And it's really clear and really interesting that God raised up this priest Melchizedek outside of normal channels. Like I said, he's, he's an outsider, even narratively speaking. At this point in the book of Genesis, the normal channel that is being highlighted is Abraham and his family. If you read and you just follow the plot and follow the narrative, at this point you're engrossed in the story of Abraham and all that surrounds him. God makes a covenant with Abraham in chapter 12, and he's going to change the, it makes it clear that he's going to change the world through Abraham's descendants, through Isaac and Jacob. That's the plot at this point. That's the narrative that you're swept in or the current that you feel yourself in when you're reading through the book of Genesis. So as you're reading Genesis, you start tracking with that narrative, and then out of the blue, outside of the narrative flow, comes this guy, Melchizedek, kind of inserted into this history, who is a priest, of, and he happens to be a priest of the Most High God. You could say an advent, an interruption into the, into the history, a redemptive interruption into the history of mankind. So let's review what we know about him so far. He's the king of righteousness. He's also the king of Jerusalem. He's the king of peace. He's the priest of the Most High God. He's highly venerated and worshipped by the great patriarch Abraham. And all that adds, adds up to this being a very significant character in the book of Genesis. Even though he appears briefly, there's a lot to him. A lot to him. And yet, there's something even more remarkable. He, it even goes more than this. There's something even more striking about this man. And it's mentioned in Hebrews 7 verse 3. Look at this. The writer of the Hebrews says, he's without father or mother. He's without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God. Let me just read that packed sent sentence again. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without, be without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God. If you, if, you just, if you take that description and make it as plain as possible, you're talking about God. 
Who else is without father and without mother, having neither beginning or end of days of life? It says he's like the Son of God. And this opens up one of the most famous debates that still rages on to this day. Who exactly is this guy? Scholars today go back and forth, back and forth. Who is Melchizedek? Was, was this a remarkable like picture of Jesus? A type? Thousands of years before Jesus even appeared in Bethlehem, pointing to Jesus in the, in the Old Testament? I, I think he's at least that. Or is this an actual appearance, what, uh, what scholars call a Christophany, uh, a, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus? We know that Jesus, being the Son of God, pre-existed his first advent. Is this a soft launch? Is that what this is? In other words, he existed before he came as a baby in Bethlehem, and there are places in the Bible where it seems pretty clear that there is a pre-incarnate appearance of God um, and uh, of God the Son. And this very well could be one of those one of those places. In my opinion, I tend to lean that way. If you take these words as plainly as possible from Genesis 14 and you compare it to Genesis or to Hebrews 7 verse 3. Um, I don't think that you can say anything other than this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. This, in my opinion, this was a, is a Christophany. Um, but you know, ultimately, the argument is very significant if we can just agree at the very least that this man was made like the Son of God. This is using a very strong and suggestive phrase in the Greek. In fact, there is, uh, the word um, made like or replicating, there, that's, this is the only place in the New Testament's ever used. You won't find it anywhere else. It's a word that means to make like, exactly like, or similar to, very similar to something. Melchizedek, in other words, at very least, is just like or very similar to Jesus in the Old Testament. It isn't really that Jesus has the kind of priesthood that Melchizedek has. That's not the point. The point is that rather Melchizedek has Jesus' priesthood. That Jesus' priesthood predates the Levitical priesthood. Um, I like what F.B. Meyer says. He says, It was as if the father could not wait until the day of his son's priestly entrance within, within the veil, but must needs anticipate the marvels of his ministry by embodying its leading features in, in miniature. So there we have this man, Melchizedek, at least representing Jesus, um, and in, this, in, in that sense. And then verse 3 tells us that he remains priest forever. So it's this eternal, everlasting, overarching priesthood, the idea that the Levitical priesthood was to point to it, um, but wasn't, wasn't a perfect replica of it, lacked in some things. So it's so very significant. Now look how great he is. Look how incredible he is. Look at verse four. He says, just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. But this man did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. 
In the one sense, the tenth is collected by people who die. That's what this, this whole thing hinges on. The difference between the priesthoods depends on uh, mortality. That's what it's all about. On the one hand, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestors. Now, this, this, So this victory of Abraham, like I said earlier in Genesis, it relieved enormous amounts of political oppression that had been going on for 12 years or so. So Abram becomes this local hero by getting involved in this skirmish. He did it because of his nephew Lot. That's kind of what inspired him to go and take on this confederation of kings. But he wins, and because of this, all of this tyranny and oppression is relieved in the land. And there's freedom and life, and people go to uh, Abraham, and they're very, very thankful but when Melchizedek comes to Abraham to thank him um, or, or shows up, Abraham recognizes someone who's greater than himself. So at, some, at this point, everyone's coming and thanking Abraham, but then Abraham sees Melchizedek and it flips for him. Melchizedek is the superior one. First of all, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And as the text says, the lesser is always blessed by the greater person. It would be inappropriate, in other words, for someone of a lower station to bless someone who's higher. That would, that would not... So if Abraham was higher than Melchizedek, it wouldn't make any sense for Melchizedek uh, to bless him. The greater always blesses, blesses the, the lesser. The task was, to, was given to those exclusively, exclusively of a higher rank. I like the way McKnight puts it. He says, the blessing here spoken of is not the simple wishing of good to others, which may be done, uh, which may be done by inferiors to superiors, but is the, it is the action of a person authorized to declare God's intention to bestow good things on another person. In other words, this is the kind of blessing you have to be authorized to do it. And then... The writer considers the fact that Abraham, who is the father of all the tribes of Israel, um, paid tithes to Melchizedek. So in a sense, not only does this Melchizedek, is he greater than Abraham, but it also makes Melchizedek greater than all the descendants of Abraham because they were still in Abraham, genetically speaking. They were still in his body. So the writer to the Hebrews is pointing out that Abraham's giving to Melchizedek as a tithe was a big deal. That was a big deal for Abraham to give him that. A tithe means 10% of something. He, and he took it. The word plunder, by the way, is a word that literally means off the top. So Abraham gave him 10% off the top. It means it gave him the best of the plunder. That's what it means. He didn't give him the leftovers or the stuff that Abraham wasn't planning on using or... Uh, the stuff that Abraham didn't really want, he gave him the stuff that Abraham would have wanted. What's that? The butter. the butter. Yes, exactly. He gave him the butter. He skimmed that off the top. He gave the best. In other words, this is an act of worship. That's the idea here. Uh, tithing is an act of worship. That's the whole point of it, is that you're giving God the best of what you've earned because of your awe and inspiration and love and obedience to God. It's an, it's an absolute act of worship. It's not, we think of it as duty. It is, but it's 
duty would be a subcategory under the greater uh, category of worship. We're worshiping God. So we don't give him the leftovers. We give him the, that's what Abraham's doing here with Melchizedek. He's giving him, it's, it's an act of absolute adoration and submission. Abraham's behavior is that of worship. So here's the picture. He receives a blessing from Melchizedek. He gives him a tenth of his best stuff and he eats a sacred meal with him. I mean, put that picture together. It's pretty powerful. Melchizedek comes and blesses him. Out of response to that, Abraham gives. And then they eat a sacred meal together. It reminds me of church. It reminds me of a church service. Jesus comes. Why are you here? I hope you're here because you've been blessed by God. He, <clears throat> that God so loved the world that he gave. He blessed you. Blessed in... Um, Blessed has the idea of being welcomed. That's the, that's the idea. Favor, grace, favor. You've been welcomed by God. You belong to him. He's saying like when a king comes in or when you go before the presence of a king, you have to wait to see whether that king welcomes you or not. In fact, in most royal courts, you don't go before the king unless you're first summoned. It's very unorthodox to go before the king on your own volition. This is God saying, you're welcome. You've been summoned, right? And as a response to that, um, as a response, there's natural worship. You give, you wanna give back. This is pretty normal, even on a small scale. Have you ever, um, have you ever received a, gr- a gift from somebody at Christmas time that you weren't expecting a gift from? Maybe not from your immediate family, maybe a, a, a distant friend. And they think of you. And not only that, they, they get something that they know you'd like. What's your first response? Oh, I didn't get you anything. Right? Because we naturally want to give back. Oh, you thought of me. I want to think of you. You know, sometimes people give us a gift and then even after Christmas, we think, well, I have to get them something now. And we go out and we get them something and we, we give it back. That's because we, we are inspired to show thankfulness. You thought of me. You welcomed me, you favored me, and now I want to think of you. I want to give something to you. I want to show that appreciation. How much more on a cosmic level here, Melchizedek shows up and blesses this priest, this eternal priest. He blesses Abraham. Abraham is the father of the world, right? He's blessing the world. Abraham represents mankind. And here, Melchizedek God blesses Abraham and Abraham. It's a story. This is a miniature story of the gospel. This is the minis- a miniature story of church, of Christianity. Why are you here? <laughs> I, well, there could be a lot of reasons why you're here. Some, good, some are better than others. The best reason for you to be here this morning is because you've been welcomed, blessed, favored by the king, by this eternal priest who's made mediation between you and God and can come with the authority of God and say, blessed are you. And because of that, you should feel inspired to give, to live generously. Not, I'm not talking about not just your finances. I'm talking about your, the best of your, the butter off the top of your life. What are some things in your life that you consider your treasures. 
First thing for me, my, my child. He is my, I treasure him. And I love God so much. He gave, God gave, God blessed me so much that it's natural for me to say, have noble too. Right? What about your talents, your expertise, your gift? See, this is why this is so juxtaposed to the American culture, the American dream. In, in America, we invest in ourselves to give ourselves back because we're worshiping ourselves. We're so in love with ourselves that we want to invest so that I can make more money and get more stuff and expand my this and have this and have more, be more comfortable and blah, 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 blah. The gospel comes around and says, no, I'm going to give God the most rich being in the cosmos is going to give his riches to the most impoverished, bankrupt people. And what does that make us want to do? Invest in his kingdom and, keep, and give to him, give back to him. It's fundamentally other-focused, and I use the singular word there on purpose. It's to him. Let's be honest. Could we sustain an others-focused mentality? Those, of, those, okay, those of, There's several of you here that work in an industry that serve others. It's exhausting, is it not? It's draining. The only way it works to truly say, serve others is when you've been blessed by another and you want to give to him. There's times that I, if it was, if it was just me and this other individual or individuals, it would, I, I run out of gas. But when I, when I realize that I am that other individual, that impoverished soul, and God gave to me a priesthood that is eternal, then I can give back. And we have a sacred meal. We partake. Uh, a sacred meal, it talks about, we've talked about this before, it talks about ingesting the blessing. Not just acknowledging it, but actually walking up to the table, scooting up to it, and, uh, and taking it, ingesting it. It's interesting, this theme, or these kind of moving pieces of blessing, meals, giving, um, go together sometimes in the Bible. There's a few examples that I can think of. There's a story in 2 in, um, Kings where uh, there's, there, an army is invading and they've surrounded the city and they've caused this famine. Do you remember the story? Everyone's starving to death. And there are these lepers and they think to themselves, okay, look, here's the deal. They're very logical people. If we stay here, we're going to die. Or we could go and give ourselves up to the, to the army that's surrounding us, and maybe they'll feed us, or maybe they'll kill us. What have we got to lose, right? So they go out to this army, and they, they're like, we surrender these, these, you know, these uh, diseased people. They've got leprosy. They go out and they're like, we surrender, we surrender. What they didn't know is that God had caused this um, confusion amongst this army where they thought another army was invading them, that Israel, had, that Israel had somehow behind their back contacted another army and that they're being invaded and routed. And so they run for their lives and they, they leave the camp just the way it is. So these lepers come in and no one's there. 
They're like, we surrender. And the fire's still burning, and there's still food being prepared for the army. And there's all this treasure that's been looted from all the other cities that they've looted along the way. And these lepers find themselves in the middle of all this plunder and all these riches. They just came from a famine and they just start, they just can't believe it. They just start eating, right? It's like winning the lottery. Their lives have been saved. And then they realize there's a whole city in there that still thinks they're under siege and they're starving. How can we sit on this blessing without telling them? Do you see, they've been blessed and it makes them naturally want to go and invite others and give. It's a natural thing. There's a sense of internal duty that comes with being blessed. I can't keep this to myself. And that's how it started in Genesis chapter 12. God says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. But it doesn't stop there. So that you will be a blessing I'll just be blunt. If you've been blessed in here financially or um, with a great mind, talent, expertise, degrees, you have been blessed to bless society. And, to bless, and there is a city out there that is still starving. How can we sit on this pile of treasure and not invest in that city? Yes, they're confused. Yes, they're hungry. Yes, they're misinformed. Yes, they're crazy. Yes, all of those things. We've got the blessing, but it's not to hoard it. See? Amen. Amen. Absolutely. We, we've been set free. We've been blessed to bless. How did this priest bless? Look at verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that, that, uh, that, established that priesthood, why was there still another, uh, uh, excuse me, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah. And in that regard, to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as, as to his ancestry, but as the basis of the power of an indestructible life, for it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So much of the Old Testament revolves around the Levitical priesthood. So much of it. So why would it be replaced based on a character in Genesis that has three verses dedicated to him? Why? Aaron went into the Holy of Holies, and here's why. Aaron went into the Holy of Holies, but he couldn't stay. He couldn't stay there. He could only go in once a year. So they had to wait a whole year before someone could approach God again. But these believers that um, the writer of the Hebrews is writing to, they have an intellectual problem going on here when it comes to Jesus. They were, in, they were interested in the idea of Jesus being their high priest, but had a significant intellectual objection to this because Jesus did not come from the priestly tribe, the tribe of Levi nor the priestly family of Aaron. And this psalm that he quotes, Psalm 110, 
is what forms our connection, our connecting link between Genesis and Hebrews. The word forever, you are a high priest forever, also means eternal. From where we get expressions like eternal salvation, eternal redemption, things like that. This not only signifies being without end, it's, it's much more than that. Only God has this attribute. Only God has the power to live forever. The point is he lives forever, therefore he can completely save us. He doesn't have to leave God's presence. That was one of the huge flaws in the Levitical priesthood. The high priest would die. And there would be time gaps until they got a new one, until they got another one. But Jesus lives forever, and yet, how does he serve us? How does he bless us? Jesus lives forever, and yet, he gave up his life. Willingly. He's eternal, and yet he chose to put on mortality. He put on the issue, the problem. Why did, why did Aaron die? Why does any of us die? Because of sin. Uh, the, uh, Paul, I think, in 1 Corinthians 15, calls death the final enemy. He personifies death as not as a condition, but actually as a power that has, that has dominion. We die. That was the problem with the priesthood. We die. And yet, Jesus is perfect because he's the priest that doesn't have to die, and yet he, he took the sting of it on himself and died on our behalf. He lives forever. The Levitical priesthood was based on escaping death and punishment through obedience to God. This priest, Jesus, suffered our punishment and death so that we might be right with God. Only Jesus has the power of an endless life, and yet he willfully lays it down for us. That is the ultimate blessing. And now, the ultimate template for us. We choose to give our life, to be poured out, to give life to this world. That's the idea. To be poured out. Um, I was just thinking again this morning as I was just praying about my role this morning and in Sunday at church and it didn't, preaching didn't come to my mind or leading worship didn't come to my mind. <clears throat> but the verse came to my mind of serving. How am I going to serve? How am I going to pour my life out and pour my heart out? Why am I learning this stuff? Why did I choose to be a pastor? Why do I keep educating myself? Why? So I can pour out and give my life for you and for this community. Why? Because I'm so great? No. Not at all because of that, because he did that for me, someone that didn't deserve it, someone that was being selfish, someone that used to want to gain more talent. And I learned to play the piano because I wanted to be famous, not because I was thinking, I'm going to worship Jesus. I think in my twisted mind, I think I put Christ I wrapped my selfishness in like Christian wrapping paper. I want to worship the Lord. But in my mind, what worship the Lord meant was me on a stage in front of millions of people <laughs> worshiping the Lord. And that inspired me. It was, it was self, self, self. <clears throat> and yet Jesus comes and he serves. He serves. We're going to, after the book of Hebrews, we're going we're to be studying through the book of Mark. 
FYI. And one of the one of the one of one of the most transforming passages in the book of Mark is Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, Mark puts two kingdoms right beside each other. The kingdom of Herod and the kingdom of Jesus. And there's Herod, you probably remember the story. He holds he he throws himself a birthday party. <clears throat> and at this birthday party, he's got all of his he, he all the important people are there. There's the military people. Um, there's the politically influential people. There's the um, there's the important families of the tribes of there's the religiously important people. Everyone's there. All the important society figures are there. And it's this party in honor of himself. And it is this party of, of celebration of absolute debauchery. You know, uh, his wife basically prostitutes her daughter to dance some erotic dance in front of Herod and all of his buddies. I mean, that's the, that's the scene. And it was so, um, it, was so it was such a turn-on for Herod that he was willing to give, he even said, he says to this young woman, probably much younger than him, his stepdaughter, <laughs> he says to her, what do you want? I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom. And men are still doing that today when it comes to pornography and those types of things. What do you, up to half my kingdom, I'll give my kids, I'll give my kingdom, I'll give my power. By the way, Herod is not even really a king. He's a tetrarch, which means Rome, he's a, a puppet king. Rome has given him a third of the territory. Okay, he's a tetrarch. He's not even a king, but he's king. I am King Herod. By the way, he's also from the line of Esau. He's, a, um, he's an Idumean. He's, a, he's a, from the line of Esau. And here, does that remind you of that? He's saying, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. What did Esau do? Yeah, I'll give you my birthright if I just get a bowl of soup. It, it's got that same flavor in the story. Here's this guy who is so ruled by his passions. <clears throat> he sees this, this beautiful girl dance uh, erotically before him, and he says, what do, you, what do you want? He's already throwing himself a big party. Whatever you want. And you know the story. She goes to her mom and says, well, what do you want? So major code. Also has a super big uh, flavor of um, Jezebel. Right? And Ahab, uh, you know, basically, here, so here's this guy who has power, who is a very small, insecure, powerless man. He's throwing himself his own party. He's controlled by his own passions. His wife is really in charge. The daughter goes to her and says, what should I ask? I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Very codependent, all sorts of... In the same chapter, fast forward, Mark tells us a tale of Jesus. Out in the wilderness, so some obscure place, he's also having a feast, but a feast that he's giving, not in his own honor. He's out in this remote place in the wilderness with not important people. He's with the peasants, he's with the lowly, the poor, the outcasts. 
And it's not about him. He has compassion on them because they're hungry. And he miraculously feeds them, not to give himself honor, but to love on other people. He's there to serve and to give. It wasn't some marketing ploy, even though the disciples thought it would, was. John tells us that. The book of John says the disciples were like, this is really good PR. This is great. And the crowd wanted to make him king. But Jesus was like, I just want to get away. He had compassion on them because they were hungry, period. Not because they might become converted. Not so that he could gain a big following. Not who he could grow his church or have a program and have a ministry. Or because he could have the edge on other Messiah-type figures. and None of that. He served them because they were hungry. Stop. That's it. And yet, and that service, that unnamed, unheard of, unpublicized service will change, would change the world. It would change the world. How different is that from the celebrityism that has become part of the Western church? The smoke, the lights, the, the big name people, the bands, and the, all of that stuff is fun and wonderful. But listen, <clears throat> and God, I think, has used that. But listen, the power that'll change the world is through people like you and me doing things that maybe no one will hear about, no one will know, doing things that will not get you a return will not get you a thank you. We were just talking before the service that that's why I was sharing with uh, Jameson and Nathan and that's why I'm here. I've, I've sat under some incredible sermons where God is just, you know those ones that God, you just like, I am this all of a sudden the, the minister or the pastor isn't it doesn't matter if he's there or not. You realize someone greater than him is in the room and talking to me, zeroing in on me. I've had lots of those moments. But I can't tell you what those sermons were about to this day. But you know what? <clears throat> there are people in my life, and if you're if you're one of those people and you're listening to this, thank you. There are people in my life that I was such a jerk to. And I was so ungrateful. And I was so cocky and so mean and I treated them like they were so dumb. And they didn't challenge me and they didn't have to win the argument and they didn't have to show that they were better or that they had it figured out and that they just kept loving me. And boy, I bet you when they went home to their family or their wife, I bet they were like, oh, that Mike kid is just... I just don't want to minister to that guy. He's a jerk. And yet I remember them. They kept loving me. They let themselves feel stupid. They let me think that I was so great and so smart. They were okay. They were strong enough. And they did a thankless job of loving me. And they didn't know, they probably still don't know. They're out there not knowing how I turned out probably think I'm in prison or something. And they might not know until heaven. And that is the, historically, 
That is the kind of Christianity that changed the world. You look into history, and sure, there were some great scholars and great thinkers in, in, in the Christian movement, absolutely. But what changed the world in the Greco-Roman system was thousands of normal, selfless people like you and me that saw their blessing as a means to bless people that would not bless them back. You and I are called to love people who may not love you back. That is our burden, church. We're called to love people and be a blessing to a city that may not bless us back, that will not bless us back. We're called to love a city that will not love us back. Why? Because we have a priest in the order of Melchizedek that was blessed enough to live forever. He's eternal. Death had no power over him. And yet, he submitted himself to death so that you and I could be free. And he did that for the whole world, knowing that many of them, most of them, would not care. Think of that. If I was 100% sure that giving my boy for you all would 100% save you, I still wouldn't do it. I'm sorry. I love him so much. I still wouldn't do it. God was 100% sure that sending his son still wouldn't save the entire world. People would still reject him and say, I don't care. And he still did it. Just think of that. The riches he's poured out on you and me. And the more you enjoy, like, so here we, so in case you haven't put it together, you're the lepers. You're the ones falling apart by decay. And we've gone in and said we surrender. And because of that, there is this bounty of grace that we get to feast on. We've been blessed. And here's the thing, the more you, and so when did those, le, those lepers start thinking of other people? Only when they were enjoying the blessings themselves. The idea is, let yourself enjoy God's grace. Be thankful. It is the greatest treasure you have. Wake up every morning thankful for the breath that's coming into your, into your lungs. When you see your, when you hug your kids or you hug your spouse or you hold hands or you see a sunset, it means so much more to you, so much more to you than it does a person that doesn't believe in God. Enjoy it. Lavish in it. Don't, if you are in the stream of God's grace only up to your ankles, get into your knees. If you're in at your knees, get into your waist. Dive in and enjoy it. And at that point, you will see others and you'll say, there's food here to spare. Eat. There's plenty of room. The water's fine. Eat. Come on, jump in. And it'll be this, this inner duty in you, not of drudgery, and you won't be able to look down on the people that are... Can, 
Can you, get, can you get mad at a blind person for not seeing a sunset? I mean, I guess you could, but they're blind, you know. Can you get mad at a blind person for stepping on your toes? Don't expect, you know, we look at the, the culture out there and we think, oh, they're so this. Yes, they're blind. Absolutely, yep, absolutely. And so were we. We're no different. So were we. We, we saw, we, man, when I was a kid, like I said, I saw things so backwards and I was sure I was seeing it right. <laughs> There's no, if I don't see another way of seeing it, there must not be another way of seeing it. And God opened my eyes and I went, oh my word, how foolish I've been. And that still happens. Oh my word, I thought I was so right. I was like a tone deaf person singing at the top of my lungs, thinking everyone was enjoying it. Mm. If you've been blessed, enjoy it. Number one, enjoy it. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take communion given by an eternal high priest who gave up his life for you. This morning, your, your task is to enjoy this. Take communion with joy. Picture yourself being a leper coming up to this altar and there's a fire burning and food has been prepared. And you're getting to partake in something that you have no business partaking of. But because of him, you do. And when you're taking communion, enjoy it. Enjoy it. Let it, uh, you know, when you go to your favorite restaurant, do you just scarf it down? No, you take your time and you just savor every bite at your favorite meal. That's what we need to do. Enjoy it. We're going to play some music. Let the atmosphere wash over you. Be in his presence. Enjoy his grace. Think of how leprous you are and yet how gifted and great you've been given such grace. And I promise you, you keep doing that and you stay in that. When you see somebody out there, yeah, you'll see that they're blind, but you'll also see yourself. And you want to give but it starts here. Jesus, thank you that you've given yourself for us. Oh, God, help us enjoy it this morning. Help us not be so quick just to get out the door to the next thing and what we're gonna eat and what we're gonna do for the rest of the day and all of that. That stuff will come. Lord, soon this moment will be a memory. Lord, I pray that you'd help us enjoy you to pull up to your table this morning and eat eat. In Jesus' name, amen.